Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. More strikes, more wins for unions this year. That's what some labor scholars are thinking. And today on the show, the Ohio AFL-CIO, the News Guild in Pittsburgh, and finally, a win for nurses with the United Steelworkers in New Jersey. Welcome to the Thursday, January 4th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least five platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. We have three guests on the show today. We're going to start things off with Mr. Timothy Berga, who serves for well over a decade now as president of the Ohio AFL-CIO, ohioaflcio.org. One of the things we're going to talk about is uh, redistricting. Common Cause recently came out with a report saying that the state of Ohio is one of the worst gerrymandered states in the country. So what are we going to do about it? Well, voters did go to the polls in 2015 and 2017, but that didn't work out. So there may be, and most likely there will be, an issue on the November ballot to deal with that. Tim's going to talk about that. We'll talk about politics, a big year, presidential year. Senator Sherrod Brown up for re-election, and he is definitely a target from the right wing. And uh, we'll take a look at the legislature and see if there's any anti worker legislation on the agenda for this year also good news and mentioned this the other day the minimum wage in the state of ohio went up on monday the first of january to ten dollars and 45 cents an hour that would not happen if it wasn't for organized labor back in 2016 and tim is going to reflect on that as well zach tanner will be our second guest on the show he is president of the newspaper guild of pittsburgh and a little background on him. He is an interactive news designer. Been on strike for 15 months. Yeah, this is the newspaper that, uh, well, actually, uh, it all began in October of 2022. But there was some unrest there for years. So now it's almost 15 months since the journalists and editors at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette walked off the job over wages and health care joining members of their sister unions who went on strike two weeks prior. So in the uh, time since, the Guild, which represents the newsroom employees, has remained on strike and bargaining sessions with the Post-Gazette management have brought very, very little progress. There's even been a court order. The judge in the area, Jeffrey Carter, ordered the Post-Gazette to resume contract talks. This was well into the beginning of the strike. And the judge even said that we have to rescind unlawful unilateral changes imposed on union members back in 2020. Zach's going to talk about that because, like I said, this has been simmering for a number of years. In fact, the paper's unions have been without a contract since the end of March in 2017. When the last bargaining agreement expired, judge said, you got to get back to the bargaining table. Management didn't even do that. They, they violated the court order. 
It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy what's been going on there. And there's been a number of rallies. They got a lot of support from national unions. The News Guild is affiliated with the CWA. The CWA has been doing everything, but so far nothing. Judy Danella will be joining us uh, later in the show as our third guest. And she's a nurse for three decades, 28 of them at the Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital. This would be in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And she is the president of her local. That would be local 4-200 of the United Steelworkers. And I've said this on the show many, many times, worthy of repeating. The Steelworkers represent over 50,000 people in the healthcare industry. And local 4-200 is just one of many locals. And they have about, oh my gosh, about 1,700 members. And they just reached a three-year contract. And this was a real bitter fight. Covers the members who work as nurses throughout the hospital and been on strike since management's unfair labor practices, which uh, began on the 4th of August of last year. Big issue. (laughs) The same issue with so many nurses. Safe staffing. Safe staffing, says Judy, is essential to both patient care and reducing burnout among health care workers. This contract sets necessary staffing ratios so we can spend more time with each of our patients and keep ourselves safe on the job. (laughs) So important. You would think, too, that when you have a patient in a hospital, that patient should be priority number one. And if you don't have the proper staffing of nurses, that priority goes out the window. It really does. So Judy Danella, president of Local 4-200, will be joining us to button up the show today. Now a brief look into the world of labor. This segment brought to you by Boyd Watterson Asset Management. You can find more at boydwatterson.com. After an unprecedented year, and I mean unprecedented year of strikes and labor wins, labor scholars and analysts see another big year. This year, 2024, 1.1 million workers are covered by union contracts, which are due to expire this year. Now, while two of the largest groups among them, postal workers and rail workers, have a limited ability to strike, teachers in Chicago and Los Angeles and Boeing machinists could all be ready to walk out. It's my understanding the Boeing contract should be coming up like August or September. Our independent labor voice, Tom Buffenbarger, has been really on that uh, on that situation. We'll uh, we'll be hearing from him in the months ahead on that. Labor scholars suggest that uh, labor success from writers to auto workers could galvanize new organizing and militant bargaining. Meanwhile, labor analysts expect more election petitions and unfair labor practice charges from unions this year. The Supreme Court's decision in Semex, coupled with a new NLRB rule that speeds up union election procedure will provide new opportunities for unions to flex their legal muscles. And I'm going to spend a little time on that decision. And we'll be talking more about that with our uh, labor analysts on the show. In August of last year, the labor board issued a decision in Semex construction in which the board reversed its long-standing precedent established in Linden lumber and adopted a new standard governing 
and employers' obligations when presented with a union demand for recognition. Now, the Linden Lumber Standard, which had been the prevailing law for more than 50 years, the decision came down in 1971, that provided an employer could simply refuse to accept evidence of a majority support for a union, and upon doing so, no further action was required by the employer. Moreover, the employer's refusal to recognize the union would not violate the National Labor Relations Act, and if an election were to occur, the union had to initiate the filing of a petition for a board-supervised election. Well, guess what? That went all out the window. And how many times has said this on the show, elections matter? When Biden took over as president, he put Jennifer Abruzzo in there as general counsel. She comes from the Communication Workers of America, and she is changing things like no other. Under the new standard, the Labor Board held that if an employer is confronted with a demand for recognition, well, the employer has two options. Number one, agree to recognize the union as the bargaining representative, or two, refuse to recognize the union, in which the case the employer must promptly, and this is within two weeks of the union's demand for recognition, file a petition to test the union's majority support and or challenge the appropriateness of the bargaining unit. The Labor Board also held that if the employer fails to timely file the petition, they call that an RM petition, the failure to do so will be considered a violation of the National Labor Relations Act and could result in the issuance of a bargaining order. Further, the Labor Board held that if an employer commits unfair labor practices during what they call this critical period, that's the time from the date of demand for recognition to the run-up of the election, the Labor Board can dismiss the petition and issue an order requiring the employer to bargain with the union. <laughs> is this amazing? This is a game changer. And I did a, I did a Google search yesterday to learn more about this. In fact, we're going to be talking to various union leaders about the Semex decision. One of them is a Tim Driscoll of the bricklayers and allied craft workers. He's definitely on this, on this situation. And uh, a number of law firms are sending out emails to, uh, to their clients saying, hey, you better prepare for this. There's a new set of rules. There's a new sheriff as general counsel of the labor board. And here's what you need to do. You need to prepare. Employers should access their vulnerability to union organizing. Respond now more than ever. Managers and supervisors must be responsive to employee issues and concerns and cannot ignore what's going on in the workplace. They also want to uh, educate, reduce the risk of committing unfair labor practices and uh, the demand for recognition. If it, a demand is made, employers can still and should refuse to recognize the union as the employee's representative. But employers must move quickly and file a petition to avoid the issuance of a bargaining order. So, bottom line is, they don't like this. They don't like this at all. And they are doing everything possible to stop what's happening at the labor board. Again, elections matter. And boy, when you got somebody that's pro-union in that uh, driver's seat, good things happen. 
Again, check this out on your own if you get an opportunity. It's the Semex decision, C-E-M-E-X. And we'll be talking about this a whole lot more in 2024. All right, a quick break. When we come back, Tim Berga on behalf of the Ohio AFL-CIO. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE.org. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Communication Workers of America. You can find more at CWA-Union.org. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at BoydWatterson.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Ironworkers. You can find more at ironworkers.org. This segment of America's Workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Steelworkers. You can find more at usw.org. Now... Back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the Ohio Federation of Teachers. You can find more at oh.aft.org. Let's go to Columbus, Ohio. Welcome a longtime regular of America's Workforce. That would be Timothy Berga, who serves as president of the Ohio AFL-CIO website, ohioaflcio.org. And I tell you, I'd like to start off the show with some good news. And uh, we have to go back 18 years to talk about this because if it wasn't for what voters did, primarily led by the Ohio AFL-CIO, that is a fact. A lot of people in the state of Ohio, hundreds of thousands of them, would not be getting a pay raise. And that started on Monday, January 1st, because of the indexing to inflation. Timothy Berga, I tell you, I'm I'm so proud of what labor did. I know you are. I mean, this and, and there's a number of states too that that follow the similar lead of Ohio. 22 states raised their minimum wage. And uh, sadly, the federal government minimum wage is still 7.25 which it still would be if we didn't do what we did in 20 in 2006. Wouldn't that be the case, Tim? Yeah, that's all right. That's a good place to start, and Happy New Year, Flash. So, yeah, in 2006, the minimum wage in Ohio had not been raised in 10 years. It was $4.25 an hour. We went to the ballot, raised it by $2.60 per hour, 
But most importantly, as you pointed out, we index it to inflation. So between 2006 and now, the minimum wage has gone up $6.20 an hour to where it's at at $10.45 an hour now. So uh, yes, yeah, we should be uh, grateful that you know, Ohioans uh, decided to vote that in. The minimum wage, uh, there's still conversations about, you know, it should be higher than that. But the fact of the matter is, if not for the work that, that we did and, and the voters approved in 2006, we'd be at $7.25 an hour. So we're $3.20 an hour on the minimum wage, higher than the federal level. And uh, it went up $0.35 cents, uh, at the start of this year. We should point out uh, for non-tipped employees, that's the non-tipped employees, $10.45 an hour. If you work in a restaurant and you're relying on tips, that went up to a $5.25 an hour. And I think the, the federal level for that is just over $2 an hour. So, yeah, you know, you can, you can make a difference. And I know you weren't president back then, but I do recall, I remember doing the show, there, there was some pushback on that issue, wasn't there? Well, anytime you... Uh try to raise the minimum wage, the, a segment of the business community comes out and says, well, it's going to be a job killer. It's going to drive jobs uh, to this state or that state or close up shopping, and it doesn't happen. It didn't happen. We said it wouldn't happen. Experience had told us that. And uh, so we was one job because the minimum wage went up. And we're talking about humanity and dignity at work here. And, and we were on the right side of history then. And and there's discussions now about continuing movement in that direction. All right, let's let's talk about the legislature for this year. And I know you're on top of it all the time, and it's all always important to call out the lawmakers that are trying to attack workers and attack unions. What are you hearing on the agenda for uh, for 2024, Tim? Anything that you uh, that maybe we should be aware of right now? What what's the case? Well, we always have our eye on prevailing wage, and we have our eye on making sure that we remain a, uh, a collective bargaining state and not a right-to-work state, and a tax on um, our collective bargaining law for public employees. And that seems to be where, if there are anti-labor measures being advocated for, it's, it's usually in the uh, public sector collective bargaining area. And, and that's why we opposed Senate Bill 83, which sought to make changes to a higher education collective bargaining law. And, you know, we had that fight back in 2011, as you remember, when we went to the ballot to overturn Senate Bill 5. So we're always keeping our eye on those things. Uh, right now, the Republican leadership uh, and the legislature is going to be fixated on whether or not to override the governor's veto on the transgender bill that they passed. So they're going to be tied up at that for a little bit. Um, but, you know, we're at the state house all the time making sure that working people's voice is heard and we'll make sure that we update you as uh, the agenda unfolds this year. All right, Tim, there's another issue here that you and I have talked about, especially uh, last year, and that is redistricting. In fact, Common Cause came out with a report not too long ago claiming that Ohio is one of the worst gerrymandered state in the country. Now, I know the voters went to the polls back in 2015 and 2018, I believe. Maybe you could correct me on that. And apparently that, that didn't work. So why don't you kind of, why don't you uh, revisit that and talk to me about what may be on the, uh, on the ballot this November? I know there's a new plan out there. Can you explain that for us? Sure. Unfortunately, Ohio is the poster child for gerrymandered districts. 
and that is politicians drawing state legislative and congressional district maps for their own political gain. And it's not serving Ohio well. You have a legislature that's completely out of partisan balance. There's no reason why one party should have uh, you know, 70% of the seats or 60% of the seats. We're not that sort of a state. Uh, and what that causes then is to have these primaries where you have extremists uh, running in a primary, and that's usually a more the contested election over the general election. So uh, it's not good to have primary elections being more important than the general election. Uh, so we've got to rebalance this. And we did support, actually, the 2015 and 2018 constitutional amendments to change the way our lines are drawn. But a bipartisan majority in the Ohio Supreme Court seven times told the Ohio Redistricting Commission last year and the year before what they were doing with these maps was still illegal, and they just disregarded it. So here we are. So there's an attempt out there by a, a group called um, Citizens, Not Politicians, to uh, go back to the ballot and take politicians completely out of the map drawing process for our state legislative and congressional districts. And the Ohio AFL-CIO is helping them collect signatures. They've been approved to move forward to collect signatures. And sometime around July 4th, they will turn in the signatures, and we'll know uh, soon thereafter whether or not this will be on the general election ballot for voters to vote on as a constitutional amendment to create an independent commission to draw the legislative maps. And that would be good for Ohio. I think uh, we're talking about uh, 15 members on that commission, five Democrats, five Republicans, five independents. And again, these are citizens, not politicians. Keep the politicians out of this. How do you feel about this? I mean, especially there were issues on the ballot in 2023, and they were definitely wins for, for, for voters, for, for uh, uh, labor and so on and so forth. But going forward, you, you feel that that momentum can continue into this year? Well, it showed that voters are paying attention to issues, and they turn out to vote on them. And, you know, as the head of organized labor in Ohio with the AFL-CIO, you know, my job is to make sure that we have legislators and legislation uh, that supports working people. That's, that's our number one priority. And if you were to have competitive districts across the board with competitive seats and legislators then have to listen to uh, common sense issues. You know, there's nothing more common sense in middle America, Main Street America, than organized labor and working people. So whether they're Democrats or Republicans, we're just seeking competitive districts where the election's not a foregone conclusion by the time we get to the November elections. And, you know, bring a little bit of balance and common sense back to the General Assembly. And that's what we're seeking to do. And, and uh, so we're going to lend our support and try to get these signatures. All right. You mentioned the uh, November election. You know, this is a, a presidential year. And of course, we got Senator Sherrod Brown up for reelection. You know, he is a target of the right wing. How do you feel about that moving forward, Tim? Well, Sherrod has been a target of the far right uh, for a very long time. And there's not a more authentic person in public office uh, than Sherrod Brown, and he continues to demonstrate um, by his legislation, by his, how he handles himself in the U.S. Senate, and what he does when he comes home um, and he visits union halls and he visits senior centers 
and he's out there advocating for issues that help working people get ahead. So uh, we support those uh, electorally who support us, and there's nobody that's been a stronger champion of working people and trade unionists than Sherrod Brown. So uh, it's a pretty easy decision for us uh, to be doing what we can uh, to support his reelection. One more question here before you go. Last year, uh, you and I talked about the many, many union brothers and sisters that decided to get involved in in politics, run for school board seats, county council, state reps. Um, just wondering here, especially with the General Assembly, there's a lot of, a lot of re-elections up here. Do you see more of that happening this year and, 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 and more grooming of those candidates? What's, what's your take on that? Well, we tend to see more union members running for office in odd number of years when there's so many local elections. Uh, there's more um, electoral seats up in this uh, odd number of years with city council and township proceeds and school board and that like. But we know we'll have a number of union members running for public office this year, and our Path to Power program will support them. There's eight members of the Ohio General Assembly that are union members, just as an example. That'll be on the ballot this year. So some Democrats, some Republicans. So uh, we're in the process of assessing all that, and uh, certainly that'll be a big component of our political work this year. Very good. Tim Berga, president of the Ohio AFL-CIO, ohioaflcio.org is the website. You take care, my brother. Again, happy new year to you and your entire staff, and uh, we're ready for 2024, okay? Okay, thank you. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Zach Tanner is the president of the News Guild in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He's going to talk about the 15-month-long strike at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Back in a few minutes. This is America's Workforce. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A. Are you an experienced mechanical insulator looking to take your career to the next level? Insulators Local 50 in Central Ohio has steady work for a number of years. Insulators Local 50 offers a total wage and benefits package that can't be beat. It's not just the competitive wages. Local 50 also provides medical, vision, and dental insurance with no paycheck deductions for you and your family. Don't miss out on the chance to secure your future. Join us at Insulators Local 50. Earn great pay and the best benefits. Visit insulators50.com forward slash AWF50 to fill out the online form and a Local 50 representative will call to begin the process. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, where you can find more at teamster.org. America's Workforce appreciates our sponsor, the Columbus Central Ohio Building and Construction Trades Council, who represents more than 18,000 workers from 19 affiliated local unions and district councils. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Auto Workers. Find more at uaw.org. 
Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. And when you get an opportunity, just sign up, receive our shows on a regular basis, and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the United Labor Agency, ulagency.org. If you missed uh, yesterday's show... We had uh, Dave Meganhart, executive director of the ULA, talking about all the good things that they're doing, including counseling for uh, mental health issues and also uh, skills for workers so they can uh, connect with the jobs of uh, today and tomorrow. So do check that out, awfpodcast.com. Let's go to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania right now. And joining us on uh, line number two is Zach Tanner. Zach is president of the Newspaper Guild of Pittsburgh. And, uh, well, the the Guild is actually part of the Communication Workers of America, and we're talking off the air. Used to be uh, News Guild Local 61, but when the CWA became part of the News Guild, it's now 38061. Did I get that all correct there, Zach? Is that right? <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay. News Guild, CWA 38061. And the News Guild has been on strike, and there's other unions involved in this as well. We're going to talk about all of it since um, October 18th of 2022 at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. But I'll tell you, this, this issue has been simmering for a number of years going back to 2017. Zach, talk to me about this. What the heck is the problem? This is all yours, buddy. Explain, <laughs> it, to, explain it to our listeners because this should not be happening, at, at least not this long, Okay. Yeah, no, it certainly should not be happening this long. That's for sure. Uh, it's been a it's been a extended amount of time. But I mean, essentially, what it boils down to is uh, we had a collective bargaining agreement, just like a lot of unions and employers certainly can come to an agreement on, that expired on March thirty first, twenty seventeen. Uh, we've been in bargaining with the company since February twenty seventeen. And they made it very clear from the beginning that they had no desire to work with us in the bounds of our previous collective bargaining agreement. Uh, they put a proposal on the table that would have, uh, you know, shredded our union rights like jurisdiction and uh, layoff security, uh, wages, all, all kinds of things. They, they really wanted to decimate our contract. They had well over 100 changes proposed to it. Uh, they put that on the table in 2017, and they really haven't made many changes since then, uh, which sounds unbelievable, right? And uh, we filed multiple unfair labor practices with the National Labor Relations Board uh, that were found to be justified, and the company has just refused to comply over and over and over again. Um, in, in addition, uh, they started uh, screwing around with our health care for, for us in the newspaper guild and then uh, teamster workers, mailers, typos, and, and press workers as well. Uh, that led to some workers having their health care canceled in October 2022, and that was really kind of like the climax of uh, several years worth of fighting that led to, you know, uh, five different unions starting a strike and uh, commencing a strike back in October 2022 that were you know, still fighting today because the company has refused to budge, uh, which, again, it's hard to believe. Once over 100 people walk out the door, you'd think that the company would come to their senses, but they haven't. No, they didn't, but they did hire some replacement workers. Can you uh, give us some details on that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I, I, I'm speaking in the in the newsroom sense. The newspaper Guild of Pittsburgh represents the, the newsroom journalists there. Think, you know, photographers, reporters, copy editors, designers, all, all kinds of folks like that. Um, you know, we walked out the door 65 strong, or 60 strong, I'm sorry, 60 strong, 
And, you know, as strikes go on, people tend to take other jobs. That happens in any strike. Um, and the company has hired uh, 26 replacement journalists uh, since the strike started, which has really, like, eroded our power, um, kind of like a classic union-busting move. Um, and that, that's been really frustrating because, you know, when, when you walk out the door with a majority and the company slowly chips away at that and keeps producing the product, it makes it really hard to gain leverage. Um, we, you know, we think we're still in a strong position, uh, but it sure would be stronger if the company wasn't hiring replacement workers rather than just bargaining with us straight up. What really got me on this, they, they even ignored a judge's ruling. There was a, yeah. there was a ruling, I believe this was, a, this goes back to 2020 yet. And he wanted the Post-Gazette to resume contract talks. And what they, they, they completely ignored it then? They ignored it, the, the, uh, the court order? Well, they, they ignored it to the point that they're appealing it to the full National Labor Relations Board. We, we want a pretty sprawling, I think it was about a 58-page uh, ruling that, that, that determined the company had bargained in bad faith, they had acted illegally at the bargaining table, they had acted illegally in contract management, and, and it ordered them to restore our 2017 contract, like I had mentioned, they had really torn, up, torn it to pieces and put in bargaining, um, and, and uh, along with a couple of other items, like I mentioned healthcare as well, and uh, they also had ordered them to just bargain in good faith, which shouldn't be something that the board needs to uh, implement, but uh, they did. The company at the bargaining table told us outright they're appealing it as far as they possibly can, and they won't, they, they're gonna choose to ignore it until then. Um, it, 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 it's really an absurd set of circumstances. Normally when companies have rulings like that issued against them, uh, you, know, you, you know, you start the bargaining process of like, okay, like you've won this, like what can we give you, what can we get? And, and they have just outright refused to engage in talks like that. We should point out too that the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette is owned by the Block Brothers, J.R. Block and his mm -hmm. twin brother, Alan Block. Now, have they owned this paper for some time? And I, I guess they have a history of doing this, from what I understand. Can you, uh, can you help me out on that? Yeah, so uh, it's 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 kind of it's kind of interesting because here in Pittsburgh, a lot of a lot of community members think that the Block family like recently bought the papers and have kind of been decimating them. But the Block family has actually owned the the Post Gazette for decades. They also own the Toledo Blade in Toledo, Ohio. Um, you know, we're talking third, fourth generation uh, Block Block ownership of of these newspapers. Um, the, the, the publishers, the Alan and John Block, they took like a really odd right-wing turn uh, back in 2016 around when Trump was campaigning. Uh, I think they maybe saw some reflection of themselves in him and decided that they were going to start stomping on workers uh, just like he likes to. Um, and that's really when a lot of the problems started. You know, before then, there'd be tough negotiations, there'd be tough bargaining, there'd be concessions on the union side, uh, but there'd always get, there'd, there'd be a deal that would get done. Um, since 2016 at Pittsburgh, that hasn't been the case. Um, several years prior to that, though, in Toledo, um, Alan Block hired the same law firm out of Nashville, Tennessee. They can't even use local attorneys to union bust. They have to bring in carpet bagging union busting attorneys, believe it or not. And uh, there ended up being about an eight-month lockout in Toledo that was deemed to be illegal, and they owed about $4 million in back pay and fines and penalties and things like that. So, you know, while in Pittsburgh they took this turn in 2016, they've, uh, they've, they've been having some bad business practices across the company for a couple of years uh, since these, uh, what I like to call evil twins, took over. 
We should point out, too, that Pittsburgh is a union town. I mean, it's, it's the home of the United Steelworkers. I mean, it's, it's very pro-union. Uh, uh, you, you've got to be getting a lot of support from, from sister unions, huh? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, you, you hear the refrain, Pittsburgh is a union town over and over again. But then when you, like, get in a battle, you really learn that that's true. Um, yeah. You mentioned the you mentioned the steel workers in particular. Like our our strike headquarters are housed in like the steel workers building in downtown Pittsburgh. They've been just absolutely tremendous to us. In fact, right before the holidays, they organized this like massive bake sale that uh, that benefited our strike relief fund. And that's money that goes straight to the pockets of striking workers to help them you know kind of stay afloat during the strike while they're not getting paid. Um, you know, like the the Central Labor Council here in Allegheny County has just been tremendous. And I, I mean, I, I could go on a, a, a giant list of names of local unions that have helped us out during the strike, but I'd obviously leave a couple out. But no, like I said, Pittsburgh is a union town through and through, and you learn that when there's a battle. Well, I know John Schleuss has talked about this, and I, there's been a number of rallies. There was a rally there on the, the, the first anniversary of this. In fact, John said he would like to see some arrests made. And apparently there, <laughs> there, there were a couple of uh, I guess hair salon owners who failed to comply with a, a court enforce NLRB order, and uh, apparently there were arrests made in that case. So he said, if it takes U.S. Marshals to uh, to detain the blocks, well, let's do it. Do you think that might happen here? <laughs> you know, honestly, at this point, nothing would surprise me. Um, and I thought it, I, one, one, of the, one of the one of the flaws of the NLRB right now, and I mean, it's it's a it's a flaw that's built by design, right? Is that they don't really have an enforcement mechanism. That's why you know we get into these prolonged court battles. But yeah, if I mean, if the U.S. Marshals are going to exist, I think the Block family would be a great family to drag out and have uh, have detained. Uh, I mean, they they truly acted illegally for years now, and uh, you know when when folks that aren't ultra wealthy like they are act illegally they they end up in jail and you know if the block family is going to do that maybe the same thing should happen to them yeah speaking with zach tanner who is the president of the newspaper guild of uh, pittsburgh and talking about the 15 month long strike at the pittsburgh post gazette so how many people uh, you, you mentioned obviously some said hey I, I i can't i can't exist anymore they have to leave so yeah. how many people are actually on strike and you mentioned, I guess, a couple dozen scabs that are working at the paper. And this is kind of a loaded question. Is, are, 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 what about the papers? Is the paper losing advertisers because of all this? Can you answer a couple of those questions for me? Yeah, for sure. I mean, so as we sit here today, uh, there's, there's five unions on strike at the Post-Gazette. Um, and there's about 90 workers that are on strike um, right now across those five unions. Um, and and those those unions cover like kind of everybody in, at the paper, you know, like the newsroom, the production, delivery, distribution, and um, you mentioned advertising too. The advertising workers are out on strike as well. Um, from from everything we've seen, from you know just you know browsing the website and looking at the print paper, uh, advertising is way down. Uh, we know that distribution's way down. They're they're printing the paper off-site at a smaller printer. They just physically can't produce as many copies of the paper that they were. And, you know, I, I think between that, attorney's fees, uh, advertising being down, uh, the, the amount of money they're paying, security to, to guard the building while, while picket lines are up, uh, you know, th this is an action that has cost this company at least six figures of, of profit, if not seven, 
And, you know, it's still the company that has their heels dug in and, like, refuses to move. Um, you know, I was just on the picket line last night asking uh, the president who walked, the president of the paper who walked out and the executive editor, like, what they're doing to solve the problem. And the president, Tracy D'Angelo, told me that she has real work to do and she can't be bothered with this. And that, I think that really highlights just what their attitude is right now. They think that this is a problem. They can just close their eyes and it will go away. Very sad. Very sad. Okay, uh, I got a website here, unionprogress.com. Is that the best yeah. website to go to for our listeners to help support? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. so unionprogress.com, that's going to be our strike publication that we've been publishing for the past 15 months. You can find all of our journalism there, a lot of great community news, strike news. Um, you'll find more information out about the strike, and there's a donate link there to, to hook up to the Pittsburgh Strike Relief Fund. Uh, like I said, that money goes directly into the pockets of striking workers to help them stay afloat. So yeah, unionprogress.com. Right. That's it. Okay. I will definitely keep it on my radar here. Unionprogress.com. Well, you stay safe and stay strong, my brother, and please stay in touch. You know, I always say this show is your show as well. This is for workers and we got to succeed. We got to win this one. So stay in touch. Okay. Yeah, I appreciate it. Have a good day. Zach Tanner, president of the newspaper guild of Pittsburgh. Again, that website, unionprogress.com. Quick break. Judy Donnell is with the Steelworkers. She's going to talk about a new contract at her local 4-200 in New Jersey. Back in a few minutes. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferrans. It takes Lyuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of LIUNA, the Laborers International Union of North America, delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with LIUNA. Find out what it takes for LIUNA to keep America running at LIUNA.org. That's L-I-U-N-A. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. You can find more at ifpte.org. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The, the United, United Steelworkers. Steel the largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in, in the, the U.S., US Canada, Canada, and, and the, the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steel workers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Heat and Frost Insulators Labor Management Cooperative Trust. Find out more at insulators.org forward slash LMCT. Union members need to be heard. Reliable and convenient union voting has never been more important than it is now. Make voting easy for your membership by working with survey and ballot systems. SBS offers encrypted and monitored solutions that ensure your elections are accurate and accessible for every member through mail-in, online, and in-person voting. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com and take the next step in getting secure and auditable elections.
This portion of the show brought to you by the International Union of Bricklayers and Allied Craftworkers. For more information, please visit BACweb.org. America's Workforce Radio is sponsored in part by the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, District Council 6, representing painters, glazers, drywall finishers, and sign and display industry workers. They remind you that belonging to a union is your right as an American. America's Workforce is presented by the Labor's International Union of North America. Feel the power right now at liuna.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That would be A. WF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the North Coast Labor Federation. Let's go to uh, New Jersey right now. And joining us on our live line is Judy Danella. Judy is president of Steelworkers Local 4-200. Steelworkers involved in healthcare for a long time, about 50,000 plus in the healthcare industry. And last Judy on the show, she was in the middle of a strike at the Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital in New Brunswick. Judy, I was reading recently that you got a three-year contract. This was not an easy thing to accomplish. Maybe you can, uh, well, first of all, welcome back to the show. I'm sure that you're happy that this is behind you, but why don't you uh, refresh our listeners uh, as to what you were going through with this uh, with this university hospital. Go ahead. Well, it was a very, like you say, um, over four-month-long strike. It was... Um, not the easiest four months. We wanted a safe contract. We wanted a fair contract. We wanted safe staffing with enforcement in there. You can always say safe staffing and put that in the contract. But let, unless there's an enforcement mechanism to it, it doesn't, um, it, if there's no teeth to it, it doesn't work. So the hospital wanted to penalize us for sick calls. The hospital wanted to penalize us and give us a cushion to make sure that, um, they, they had a cushion for, for unexpected events. So they eventually conceded on the sick calls. A nurse will not be penalized for calling out sick. There is a cushion to the contract, but they still have uh, safe staffing guidelines in there with a monetary value attached to it if they are not met. And that is pretty much what we fought for. That is pretty much what we wanted. Safe staffing affects the patient. It affects the nurse. And that's what we wanted in our contract. And after four long months, um, we did achieve that. So, so you had to had to wait out four months in order to this to happen. What what kind of things did they did you have to go through during that four month period there, uh, Judy? Well, we had to go through a loss of health benefits. Our members lost their health benefits on September first. Um, the USW did have a plan, so many of our members went into that. Uh, many of our members went into COBRA, those with medical issues, and, um, you know, COBRA could be quite expensive. It range, ranges anywhere from $850 to almost $3,000 for a family. Um, so we went with that. Of course, the loss of pay, the respect, the, the hospital did not respect anything we had, as well as when we had, we would give a proposal. Sometimes we would wait three to four weeks for a response back from the hospital. So there was a lot of um, moments there where you never knew what the next uh, turn was going to be because it took so long for the responses from the hospital. We would give the response back. They would take forever. But as you say, thank God, we finally got an agreement. And, um, you know, just the members on the line, it's, you know, when are they going to respond? 
what is today? Did the union respond? We always responded back to them in a very timely manner. What was the uh, vote? What was the ratio of, of getting this over the finish line? 88% of our members voted to accept the contract, and the remaining 12% voted the contract down. But it was pretty much in an overwhelming um, majority that the contract was voted in. And it did, in, it did include a, an increase in pay. It did include um, a cap on insurance for, for first year. It included an increase in on-call pay um, and language increases that affected our nurses along the way. How did, uh, how did they hold up during this four-month period? You mentioned COBRA. I mean, financially, everybody took a hit on this one. But I'm just wondering, as far as solidarity, how, how would you assess that? Well, it was really incredible to see the amount of nurses that would come out to the picket line on a daily basis and the amount of support. We did have a church hall that we were based out of, and um, anytime you went in there, there were nurses in there as well as on the picket line. And I think the support from each other is what got people through this. You would, I mean, in speaking to many members on the line, it was like, oh, I really don't you know, feel like coming out today, but their colleagues picked them up. And then they actually started going to town council meetings. They actually took this to another level, um, the safe staffing, because New Jersey is trying to pass a law on it. So now that we have it in our contract, the state is trying to pass and get it through the legislation. So many of our members attend town hall meetings. Many of our members attend uh, activities still to this day after the strike, after the vote was ratified, that help with safe staffing and moving it to the next level. So they've been incredible. I couldn't be proud to be the president of a local with so many strong, dedicated nurses. Well, that's good to hear. Okay, if you don't mind, if I could delve into the safe staffing thing, I, that's an issue for all nurses all over. I mean, they're, they're fighting, and it, especially COVID put nurses on the front line showing what uh, what you had to do to keep people healthy. And uh, it was a very difficult time. It just showcased the importance of those frontline workers like yourself. But uh, you mentioned the, the legislation, the legislative leaders over there in uh, in New Jersey are apparently taking a close look at what you were able to accomplish. When you say safe, safe staffing, what, what are we talking about here? Can you be specific on that? What we're talking about is every hospital to have a ratio, whether it be one nurse to five patients, one nurse to four patients, one nurse to two patients, one nurse to one patient. It is um, a safe staffing level for every patient in a hospital in the state of New Jersey similar to what we have in our in our contract that we just um, ratified throughout the state that this goes to whether you're in the hospital that I work in in New Brunswick or a hospital in South Jersey or North Jersey, that all of the hospitals have safe staffing numbers and nurse-to-patient ratios. So that's pretty much what the legislation is fighting for now. And you feel pretty confident that the lawmakers in New Jersey will, will pretty much adopt that then? Well, I had to be honest with you, it's been a long struggle. It's been 20 years. It is not something we've just undertaken. Um, I've been with my hospital going on 29 years, and this fight for safe staffing and bringing it to the next level has been going on for, as I say, greater than 20 years. I think the problem being the hospital administration, the hospital association in the state of New Jersey is very powerful. So I think that they are leading the opposition against it, but the nurses are not giving up. 
The nurses continue to go. The nurses continue to have their voice heard. And um, we will continue until we move it to the next level. Judy, I have another question here for you. And we're here, and because of working conditions uh, in so many professions, we do a lot with the teachers. Teachers, oh, that used to be a, such a profession that everybody wanted to get into decades ago. You don't see them doing that anymore. And it's across the board with many occupations. Nursing is another one. They're saying, wait a minute, do I have to go through all this stuff? The money's pretty good, but then the working conditions. What What's the situation in the state of New Jersey with that with that being the case? I mean, do people want to still go into the profession um, because, despite what, what we're hearing about things like this unfair labor practice strike? What, what would you, uh, what would you say to that? I, I think that COBRA took a hit on nursing. Many nurses left the profession during COBRA. Many did not want to go into the pro, uh, profession. So it did take a major hit. I think many nurses also, seeing that the challenges they do face with bedside, seeing that the challenges they face with um, not with having too many patients um, to each nurse. And a lot of them are brand new nurses just out of school. Uh, so New Jersey did take a hit with it. I'm hopeful that with safe staffing, it will be a retention tool as well um, and say, hey, this isn't a bad job. I don't have to go in to have a one to eight and one to nine ratio. I can have a one to five ratio and it will give the nurse time to spend more time with her patient and hopefully um, bring more nurses into the profession. That is the goal because, yes, nurses have left the profession very much after COVID and I guess with, you know, many of the diseases and and challenges we face, they still don't want to go into the profession. But hopefully with this bill and with our contract, more nurses will want to come in and um, look to nursing as their future. Well, you're lucky you had a powerful union behind you. We're speaking with uh, Judy Donella, who's president of Local 4-200, and they're affiliated with the uh, United Steelworkers. United Steelworkers have about 50,000-plus in the healthcare field. Um, as far as the steelworkers being your partner in all this, you had to feel pretty confident that you were that you're going to get the support that you definitely deserved, right? Um, yes, you know, as you said, they are a large organization, and um, in the healthcare organization, and um, the support we received them from them financially, and um, just the support from them, you know, we couldn't have done we couldn't have lasted as long as we did on the strike on the picket line without their support and their involvement. So yes, I am grateful to that very much. All right, Judy, I'm going to leave it on that note. Thank you so much for joining us. It's good that you have this contract behind you and uh, keep in touch with us. Any other issues that pop up, you got a friend here on America's workforce. Okay. Gratefully appreciate it. Thank you so much. And that'll be it for another edition of America's workforce tomorrow. Dorsey Hager, the Columbus central Ohio building trades. And it's our first Friday with Fred. Fred Redmond, Secretary-Treasurer of the AFL-CIO. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful day. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce Radio Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.